0: My name is Christine Garvin, and I am here today with a really awesome woman who's actually in uh, my apprenticeship program with me, um, with Nicole Jardim, and this woman has really impressed me so much um, since the very first moment that I read her bio. Um, She's really, really smart (laughs) and doing some amazing work. Um, and, and I really, I'm excited to, to hear more about that today, but, um, I, the research that she's doing is really incredible. And then she also has a personal story around endometriosis, which I know so, so, so many women deal with and don't know how to deal with. And she's, um, in ger- located in Germany where there's not necessarily as much sort of happening around that. Um, research and everything as here and and really groups and stuff like that. So she's actually part of a a group there and has helped a lot of the women out. So I'm really excited to talk to her about that today. So her name is Laura Team. All right, I'm going to cut that out. (laughs) Laura, Laura Tima. Her name name is Laura Tima. And I'm really excited to talk to her today about all of these things, and really delve into some of the research that she's doing because I think it's really going to be helpful for um, women overall, for our health, for hormones. So we're going to dive right in. Welcome. Hi, I'm Thank so glad so much. You're I'm back
1: to be here. <laughs> <laughs> so, thanks moving
0: along. <laughs> um, no worries so yeah like I said I'm really excited to have you here and I just want to um you know dive into your background a little bit so can you tell me more about this you know what you're working on right now and your it's your PhD that you're working on right
1: right yes wow. so at the most I'm doing my PhD it's my third year already so time flies
2: Wow. <laughs> no, no.
1: and um, so I rather in the like middle to end of my PhD thesis, so on average people need like four years, okay. but you can actually never know. It's because it's research, you know. Okay. <laughs> um, that's like the good and the bad part about it. And um, yeah, so I did uh, my bachelor's in my Bachelor of Science in Molecular Life Science, which basically covered all kind of scientific areas, let's say. So a lot of biology chemistry a lot of physics even informatics (laughs) which i didn't like (laughs) and um but also microbiology molecular biology so really like a broad range and you really get to know all the basics um about like every discipline let's say Mm -hmm. and then in my masters i focused on infectious diseases so I, i studied infection biology which covered, of course, different pathogens, but also the immune system. So for a long time, I actually wanted to go into research on the immune system. Mm. And um, yeah, now currently, I like got really into the topic of infection biology by studying biofilms. So in general, our group is focusing on antibiotic-resistant bacteria. And biofilms, um, so they are like a tolerance mechanism of bacteria. So bacteria are quite smart and they are like, together we are strong. So what they are doing, if they are under stress in the body, like, let's say they're bacteria somehow managed to go, to go into your body to an area where they shouldn't be. And then, of course, sooner or later, uh, the body will recognize and react to it and then you might be given an antibiotic, then those bacteria are quite smart and say, okay, we protect each other. And they start to aggregate to really build a community. And the word community here is really important because it's like, it's not like they are just aggregating and attaching to each other, but they really form whole community, a whole 3D structure, have really awesome ways to communicate with each other. And, they also form a kind of slime around them. It's called biofilm and this really protects them from the antibiotics and also from the immune system.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so it really is this motto: "Together, we are strong." <laughs> and um, it's
0: so interesting. Is, yeah.
1: Yeah. I clinical, just quite...
0: wow. So I just learned about biofilms probably within the past, like I don't know three years. And I dealt with a lot of candida overgrowth in my 20s, and had no idea about biofilms. And like, now that I understand them, I understand why for so long, when I was fighting candida, and and a lot of people I knew and clients and everything, they weren't really getting anywhere, because they weren't breaking down the biofilms, right? I feel like that's just kind of gotten on the scene in terms of people understanding with, with that, you know, Um, so bacteria and yeast that it has this protective layer and that you got to get rid of that in order to get to the stuff underneath.
1: Yeah, totally. So biofilm research is actually quite a new discipline. Mm. So it's like the, the term was first mentioned in papers or publications in 1985 So that's not that long ago. Mm -hmm. And also on conferences, it started maybe like 10 years ago to really become the medical focus. So -hmm. I think there was more biofilm research, but just like more environmental research Mm -hmm. on biofilms. And really people started to think about it in clinical terms, um, just the last decade, because now we are using more implants. So Mm -hmm. So. Bacteria really like to attach on implants, let's say, hip hip implant, or also when you get a catheter. And um, yeah, so this is like the primary source of biofilms, like medical biofilms.
0: Right. Wow. Wow. So what kinds of things do you think you're, you know, going to do with, with this PhD and this research?
1: Um, yeah, so that's a quite a really good question. (laughs) I was, of course, like thinking about a lot, um, the last year. So like, I think everyone in my position does have this in mind because it's like the normal career, let's say in in Germany or like maybe let's actually all over if you go in academic or stay at universities, it's like you do your bachelor, you do your master, you then do your PhD. Mm -hmm. And you also have to do it. It's like if you want to. So I have two possibilities, basically. Or let's say I have two classical possibilities. Mm-hmm. So the first one would be I stay at university or any other research institution.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, which means I stay in the lab and continue doing experiments and write publications. And um, the like the main drawback there is you always have to apply for money. So mm-hmm. you always have to write projects and apply at you know different huge institutions and there's a lot of competition so like 80 percent of all project proposals actually get rejected <laughs> so it's also not so much how good you are I mean at this point everyone is good I mean that's important to understand you wouldn't do a PhD if you wouldn't have been successful in your bachelor and master's so there's a lot of good competition and then it's a lot it has a lot of do with luck basically and um yeah that's like hard to build your life and your money and your income mm-hmm. luck. <laughs> and the other possibility would be to go in the industry mm-hmm. so to work at different companies but you know it's like so I have friends who did this and but it's different because you're not that free in your research mm-hmm. because of course there's always the idea okay we need to make money with your research and it should lead to a product or anything right and um also very often people do then like project management stuff or quality control stuff so it's not really research you're doing then but you usually have a safer income right yeah so um go
0: ahead
1: Yeah, so those are the like the two classical possibilities, and as you know, that's why I'm (laughs) in the program of Nicole. I became very interested in becoming a health coach, or in general to go more in this direction because of my own history with, um, yeah, endometriosis and generally problems when coming off the pill. And um, I think because of my educational background, it was for me easier to um understand this functional medicine stuff because of course like for me it was always so clear that nutrition plays a role um just because in my bachelor's i learned all the biochemical pathways like uh yeah whatever you want to take and um so i never studied nutritional science but of course we covered this and um for me it makes all always makes sense that you need certain kind amount of minerals or vitamins or whatever because they of course uh have like they work as cofactors for all the enzymes and um so for me it was always clear to say ah okay you're missing i don't know magnesium so right. of course if this pathway is not running perfectly and mm-hmm. this might lead to your symptoms and yeah so for me yeah, this is, I think, like, was a um, huge benefit for me when I, like, try to learn more about my health uh, situation, mm-hmm. that I got, like, better access to it. And, yeah, I, I really have this um, strong wish to help other women with this as well. Yeah. And um, so this is a career option. So a really untraditional career option mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm yeah currently considering. Well, and. Um, yeah:
0: I think that's great, and I'm really glad you brought up the point of, you know, um, scientifically, we know that there are certain pathways that we need to detox properly, that there's enzymes and coenzymes and that these are found in food, because I think so many people actually don't get that. like they get that we have to eat to live, but they don't think about what is in the food actually is used by our body. You know It's actually used by our tissues. I like- and- Right. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I, especially, I think, you know, allopathic medicine in the U S is so disconnected from nutrition and really the understanding that, that those things do have an impact on all parts of your health. And so I think the work that you're doing is really important to sort of bridge those. Right. And that's what functional medicine really does. Um, but, it, you know, I, I just wanted to kind of put a nail on that head because I think that's really important for people to understand. And just, I, I want to talk more definitely about um, you going off birth control and everything that, that happened then. But before we hop into that, I'm really curious about, you know, the research that you are doing with biofilms and how you kind of see that connected to women's health and hormones, if there's any connection.
1: Um, so with biofilms, not so much because... So we have to differentiate between biofilm and colonization. Mm-hmm. So, and so, I mean, the microbiome is somehow like correlated to biofilms.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But for me, biofilm is really more thinking of this infectious process. So mm-hmm. meaning the immune system is really reacting to it mm-hmm. versus colonized bacteria are more or less like living in synergy with your body. Mm-hmm. Maybe we could put it like this. Mm-hmm. and. Um, so, I mean, in my field, like what I'm doing is really like in my current research is really about what kind of antibiotics might work against biofilms and stuff. Mm. And, um, I became like more interested uh, in, in, um, colonization and, um, the microbiome in terms of endometriosis. I think this is like a really current topic at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, in like endometriosis research that we have this possible bacterial contamination hypothesis Mm -hmm. and um yeah it's like for me it's like a perfect aspect of a perfect idea because it really combines like two topics so i was actually reading a lot about uh this bacterial contamination hypothesis there are researchers um speaking of the endobioter already so combination of endometriosis and microbiota endopiota uh, i i personally think this is a bit too early i think it was more a catchy term to get published <laughs> so because i know how this works you have like a really good sexy title to get published and um but it's yeah so there are like quite some studies now so i was thinking at the beginning okay it's just like one or two papers but when you dive into this topic there are more definitely and um So what they find there, for example, is that women with endometriosis are colonized with more gram-negative bacteria
2: Mm.
1: and um, also lacking more gram-positive bacteria like lactobacilli. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And so this is like one thing they noticed. And this is true for, so they analyzed different compartments. And so they had a look at the vagina. Mm-hmm. but also at the uterine cavity, which is interesting because so this is also like really interesting. Um, like, I think in general, new like a new research uh, aspect of microbiome uh, research, because we now fi- we now find out that bacteria are pretty everywhere in the body, right? So I learned that the bladder should be a sterile compartment. That's what I learned. I mean, I did my like three or four years ago (laughs) and now we are like okay there's a microbiome in the bladder and um, uh, so primarily my so the biofilms i am i'm researching on it's about the biofilms forming on heart valves it's called then infective endocarditis um so that's when bacteria attach to the inner linings of the heart valves and of course this leads to inflammation and um, also to destroyment of the heart valves and it's like potentially deadly so it's a serious disease and they also find found other bacteria actually there so so some researchers speak over kind of microbiome on the heart wells (laughs) and I was like okay that's like really (laughs) strange (laughs) and um yeah but coming back to endometriosis and the microbiome so they found uh yeah this kind of disturbed microbiome in the vagina in the cervix in the uterine cavity and then also in the peritoneal area so the idea there is that the bacteria get into the um how are you saying your cavity like um peritoneal. yeah and <laughs> um, either wire translocation via the gut and this becomes really interesting when you think about okay like Actually, every woman with endometriosis has a kind of sensitivity to a certain kind of food, mm-hmm. le- leading to a leaky gut in the end. Mm-hmm. So, for me, it's definitely wheat, and I think gluten also. Mm-hmm. I was quite lucky to um, learn this at an early age that I'm reacting to wheat. Mm-hmm. And I think this was really good for me because I think otherwise, my endometriosis would have been much worse.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, so, it's often wheat, it's um, very often dairy products. Mm-hmm and um then also histamine i think it's uh yeah we talked about this in the last call a lot i think it's also a really yeah trigger and this is also not really known at the moment but i think so for me this is true i've learned this and um yeah so this is like one idea that when you're eating those food this leads to inflammation in your gut and then to leaky gut and this is how the bacteria which somehow became wrongly colonized there, uh, go into your peritoneal cavity. And this, of course, I mean, the body reacts to this, right? right. And it's not, it's not like... Um, so the idea is not that there's a certain kind of bacterium leading to endometriosis. This is not the idea. But the idea is there are lesions already there, and then the bacteria get in there, leading to more inflammation, because this triggers the immune system. And then you just make the whole inflammation reaction worse. Yeah. And another idea is how the bacteria get um, into the peritoneal cavity is that this happens via retrograde menstruation. Um, so this is also, I mean, uh, like still very strong theory how endometriosis, like. It comes to existence right mm-hmm. that we have retrograde menstruation mm-hmm. and then there's something wrong with the immune system so the immune system can't let's say eat all the cells but rather like do the opposite and helps to establish them mm-hmm. <laughs> um and then of course when there are also bacteria in the menstrual blood because they also like colonized there they get in the peritoneal cavity and this is another pathway how um yeah this contributes to endometriosis so very interesting for sure yeah.
0: it's and, and you know it, it interests me when you were talking about that sort of the, the new hypothesis um of microbiome and and endometriosis you know really that's what kind of all autoimmune stuff could be right is kind of what what we're coming to the the realization and um, the breakdown of our gut is kind of what's leading to this, right? And I'm curious, you know, I understand that things are much more diagnosed these days, but is endometriosis much more common now? Or is it something that's kind of been there for a long time?
1: Um, I think it's been there for a long time. Mm-hmm. but so for example my mom also had endometriosis mm-hmm. not as painful or severe as i had but mm-hmm. um she also had it so there's a genetic component component mm-hmm. um but this is also not completely understood uh, at the moment because it's not like that every daughter when the mother had endometriosis gets endometriosis as well mm-hmm. it's not that easy never right. is <laughs> So I think in general important to understand when it comes to genetics is epigenetics, right? right. So that um, it's always about the environment and mm-hmm. um, meaning like the direct environment in terms of toxins, but also what you are eating, how much stress you have and like all the factors playing into this. And I think, and this is like true for all kinds of diseases these days, also for infectious diseases, that we just, the medicine, get better and better to diagnose things, right? Mm-hmm, right. And when it comes to endometriosis, they are now working on um, blood tests or saliva tests. Right. And I think once they're there, maybe... So I think there are two ideas at the moment. So they um, there's one company, I think it's a company, they are working on a blood test. So they found out that... In the cells we have so-called mitochondria which are like the powerhouses of the cells
2: mm-hmm. and
1: they also have a kind of dna and they found out that uh, women with endometriosis have like certain genes different than women who do not, do not have endometriosis in those mitochondria in the cells and they somehow want to analyze this while like just taking blood and then they determine those genes in the mitochondria of the cells
2: mm-hmm.
1: and this will lead to a diagnostic test for endometriosis and then there's another um, approach and i think it's a, uh I think it's called dotlab and I've, uh, it's uh, i think a woman who studied in harvard or yale or something yale or something mm-hmm. and she's working on the saliva test and this will um, analyze microrna mm-hmm. and just like to not go too much into T-Day, but microRNA is also something happening on the transcriptional level. So um, it's also influenced by epigenetics. Right. So,
0: to say. so if and these tests, if this blood test and the saliva test, you know, come to be and they kind of show the genetics is, is the bigger part, will that kind of knock the retrograde, is retrograde menstruation? Is that what it's called? Um, will it knock that theory out? Or is that still a possibility, even if it's genetic too?
1: I mean, for me, for example, so I was 12 when I got my period and Mm -hmm. it was pretty painful right away. Mm -hmm. And so I think for me, for example, this theory of retrograde menstruation doesn't make too much sense, right? right? Right. And there's another theory that there's a kind of steam cells which um are wrongly programmed and so the idea is that my endometriosis was already formed when i was in the womb of my mother right and then when poverty started estrogen started to be produced. (laughs) then this was triggered to to really develop into like full endometriosis and there is um a third theory that endometriosis cells actually get delivered by the lymph and blood system throughout the body Uh so there are women actually having endometriosis in the lung or even in the brain Mm -hmm. which is um totally crazy and um so this is not totally understood right so retrograde menstruation is just one factor and to be honest i i think nine out of ten women have retrograde menstruation so it's like a really common thing (laughs) And so this is not the cause, you know. The problem then is what happens when the lesions or when the tissue, endometrial tissue, is at the wrong place. Mm-hmm. And this is what researchers try to understand now, that it's, um, yeah, pro- like, the, they know already it's the immune system reacting um, wrongly or differently. And this is, yeah, I think if you look, at, like, into the natural medicine world or um, when we think of diet this is I think why such approaches work so good or so well because we know we can follow an anti-inflammatory diet we can take certain supplements and stuff and this will calm the inflammation and but if you think of conventional medicine there's no um, drug at the moment in the pipeline or so of course under investigation but there's no there will be no drug focusing on the immune system when it comes to endometriosis right Uh, not because people are not willing to do this but it's really really hard to find a drug which targets the immune system in general right because this is like really really hard and i think when it comes to autoimmune diseases in general, so there's this strong hypothesis that endometriosis might be autoimmune, also.
2: Yeah, it makes sense.
1: There, there are hardly any drugs, right? Because right. it's it's really, really hard to, to come up with one. And um, because the immune system is so complex and it's important, of course. So if you like give those person without immune diseases a really immune suppressive agent, they probably die because of an infection.
0: Right, right. and that, that's kind <laughs> so of an infection yeah
1: and um yeah so i think but this is like the point where um alternative approach approaches become so
0: valuable and um and it's kind of just taking us back to how we used to eat right (laughs) the ways that we ate for thousands of years before um you know, the advent of all of our processed foods and, and pesticides and such. But um, one thing that I wanted to say popped into my head when you were talking, um, I did this project um, a couple of months ago called Hidden. And it was with um, a group of women that have what we'll call hidden diseases. And really the majority of those are, you know, autoimmune diseases And it was really interesting to me because, you know, I knew about endometriosis before. I knew some of the basics, but several of the women in the project, I interviewed them. They had endometriosis. And they were, um, one of them in particular, you know, she knew that she had it at a young age. Like, you know, I I forget how young, but um, 11, something like that. But her doctors basically refused to, you know, to say that that could even be a possibility because they're like, oh, you're too young. And I find that that's really, you know, I mean, obviously putting, um, women and girls into that category of like, oh, you're just overreacting, et cetera, et cetera. What they, what a lot of doctors will do, you know, um, it's also getting the science out there to prove that it can happen that young that it, it happens in the womb, you know, like you were talking about that, being a possibility. And so, yeah, these signs can show up at a very, very young age. And obviously having blood tests, saliva tests will help tremendously with that because right now you pretty much have to do a, 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 um, surgery, right. In order to, to determine like a hundred percent that you have, yeah. which is like yeah. insane to me that they can't, you know, figure it out without opening you up. Um, and, it, is, and it,
1: it, it makes me really mad, not just with a woman with endometriosis, but also as a scientist, because it's just not it's not like it's not possible to do such or to develop such a such a test. It's just no one has ever done it. Right. And um so like there's more and more research coming up on endometriosis, which is great, but um it's a bit too late maybe, or yeah. well, yeah. like not too late, but it should have happened way before. But this is the problem, like endometriosis compared to other diseases. They are involved, of course, with menstruation and infertility and women do not want to speak about this. Right. And um, so I'm quite open with this. I always tell my colleagues, OK, I have this kind of disease and I'm interested in this kind of research stuff. stuff. Um, so for me, it's really important that although... Like maybe a female colleague is not like probably not having it. She might have a friend having it. And Mm -hmm. it's still happens so often that people have never heard of endometriosis. Right. And um, so I think this has, so there's really a shift going on the last years also here in Germany. Mm -hmm. There's a lot more going on also in newspaper and media and stuff, which is Mm -hmm. really good. Mm -hmm. And Yes, but still, this will take some time, right? That people really know um, what is endometriosis. Right. And, but then the problem is, there isn't much, so the approach is actually, as you said, you can just diagnose it with the operation, which of course is scary. Mm-hmm. And... So I was quite lucky because so I when I was sixteen, so I already had like four years of pain, mm-hmm. and when I was sixteen, my mom finally went uh, to the doctor with me, and then of course there was described birth control pill because that's all they can do. Okay. But I was lucky because she was she, like she told me, okay, you might have endometriosis, and just to hear this at an early age is really really seldom. Also nowadays, right. I think nowadays it's becoming better, which. Um, yeah it creates a new problem because i know women with my um, support group of endometriosis who got their diagnosis when they were like 19 or something and of course it's like pretty scary and if you get to told at such a young age okay you have a disease which likely makes you infertile right mm-hmm. so it's like i think it's it totally, like, it has both sides. So um, for me, it's like, I've of course, I felt quite dismissed when I was put on birth. But like, so still today, until today, the approach would be just take hormonal birth control until you're ready for a baby. And so this is also something which really upsets me that endometriosis is not so much seen as a disease on itself, but rather as a problem to not be able to get pregnant. Right, And this is often the approach here. So, um, because I was moving a lot around for my studies, I also was like, had to find a new doctor <laughs> quite often, mm-hmm. but also I changed quite often doctors because I didn't feel comfortable with them or not taken seriously. Right. And, um, and they, they are just, it's like always the same approach, right? Take, just take this kind of birth control tool. You're not happy with it. Try this one, try that one. And at some point I was like, I tried all. Right. <laughs> what now? Right, right. <laughs> and, um, yeah. So. Um,
0: How long have this, you been this, off birth control?
1: Uh, I stopped birth control after my surgery three years ago. So okay. three years now. Okay. And um, it's been an on and off. Thing since then, <laughs> as you know, <laughs> and it's um, so like overall, I'm like really coping with the disease well. So um, I maybe have like once or twice a year kind of flare, but still, I never was at the same pain level I was before surgery. So um, I mean, of course, this is also quite individual how your pain level, <laughs> yeah. accepted, right? right. But uh, so surgery for me was like a total relief and
0: totally necessary, and I, I think, think this is also very really important. I sorry. Can you, can you explain the surgery for people that don't know about what what? Yeah. So it's a
1: called like keyhole surgery. So basically, it's um, not like they totally have to cut off your abdomen or belly or whatever. Mm-hmm. So. Um, like under your belly button they make a small hole Mm -hmm. and then um a bit lower and this is where like they they need two holes to just like get into your belly Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then to have a look how like what is going on so for me it was so for me they never saw any lesions on ultrasound so uh, in all these years they never saw this and this is also quite common and um So it depends how severe your endometriosis is. So Mm -hmm. I was rather lucky to have like superficial lesions, like rather small superficial lesions, but they also can be deep infiltrating. And those can be seen sometimes on ultrasound, Mm -hmm. Um, but the superficial smaller ones, actually not. What you can see are endometriomas, which are like endometriosis cysts, which are then on your ovary. those you can see on ultrasound um but i would say in general surgery is rather base so you actually like the conventional way to get surgery is you can't become pregnant and then the doctor will tell you after a year or so okay we need to look further <laughs> mm-hmm. you have a pay, you have a lot of pain when you have your period it might be endometriosis mm-hmm. this, this is like the, the normal approach
2: mm-hmm.
1: and um Did they remove anything when they were in there? Yeah, right. So once they're in there, they, like, for me, it was like a diagnostic um, operation. And, um, but of course, when they find something, they remove it. And then it's very important that they cut it out completely. Mm. Because, so you can um, decide between excision excision surgery and I think it's called ablation. So, Mm. like the tip of an iceberg which is just like cut off but the rest of it's still there and this is very important that they really cut off everything mm-hmm. because otherwise if you just do it like this a couple of weeks later everything's right it's the same
0: with the fibroids too yeah
1: yeah yeah right so um and I was really lucky because all of these things I had no idea about so I really started to um read about endometriosis and to get into research and to learn all i'm telling you (laughs) uh, three years ago when i really got my official diagnosis and um so like backwards i was like okay i'm really happy that i went to a specialized center so in germany like medicine germany is quite good we have specialized endometriosis center at university hospitals here so they they know what they are doing and and, um they did excision surgery and they did quite well and um yeah, but I was really, like, when I was reading, okay, there's actually the approach to just cut it off, let's say, or, or ablation, I don't know it's how the word is, um, I was like, okay, I'm so lucky that they really cut it out, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, because in the US, I think this happens a lot still, that um, they do not, like, like, simply cut it off, Right. right. And, yeah, but... What's really important to understand also is that pain levels are not correlating with the size of the lesion. Mm
2: -hmm. And this is
1: something scientists scientists are really struggling still with to understand. Mm -hmm. So you can have like, I don't know, a millimeter small, like just really tiny dot lesion Mm -hmm. brings, brings you totally pain every month.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: um where this they are women having their whole abdominal area full of endometriosis also deep infiltrating infiltrating endometriosis but they do not have any pain wow and um this is still also not understood mm-hmm. and yeah really like interesting for sure yeah. um but i think yes i So for me, it's like, I, um, so I like to have this, like, of course, I do not want to be in pain, but I like to feel my body. So Mm -hmm. I know now when I eat certain things, so for example, with the histamine, I ate a lot of sauerkraut. (laughs) I ate a lot of sauerkraut last night year mm-hmm. and um so freshly fermented sauerkraut mm-hmm. and i got a really bad endometriosis flare mm-hmm. so i was having so much pain during ovulation already so i woke up in the middle of the night because it hurt so much mm-hmm. i was had severe cramping also my period was gone and my belly and my whole like really everything was still cramping and um, also diarrhea and stuff so it's like really you know for me i can feel the difference i can feel mm-hmm. Is it now inflamed endometriosis or is it just menstrual cramps yes. during my period? Right. Um, but I, I think not all women can separate this. Yes. So for me, it's really like you need to like really have a good body feel, like a good feeling of yeah. your body. And um, yeah. so I, I grew up like this, right? Mm-hmm. But... Now, this is not how women or people in general nowadays
0: live. I mean, it's just like you have like a little bit of pain, just pop that pill right, um, exactly. Yeah, and ignore it. <laughs> yeah, and we're so disconnected from our bodies. And so it's hard yeah. for you to, You know, one of the things that I've just over years of doing this, um, uh, very similar to you, like I can tell in my body now kind of what it needs or what it doesn't like, pretty quickly, you know. And people always say, "Well, how do I figure out what I'm allergic to?" You know. And I'm like, the first thing you have to do is pay attention to your body, you know. And you've got to do it consistently and build up that muscle because our bodies really are trying to tell us all the time, "Hey, this is not working for me," or "This is," you know. And and we also have to get over, um, you know. I think a lot of times women may know what their body doesn't like, but they're not willing to admit that to themselves. Things like, you know, gluten and dairy and all that. They're like, but I love cheese, you know? And I'm like, I get it. But this is what this is what is causing these issues or it's one of the main things that is causing these issues and you're not going to get better if you don't yeah. remove this. And, and so, you know, I think that's, I mean, there's so many levels of, of working with food and the psychological and the connection to food and things from childhood, you know, so it's, it's definitely not that simple, but really coming back to, to listening to your body and allowing for some discomfort sometimes so that you can start to really understand. Um, But going back to what you said about, you know, the sauerkraut and the histamine, Um, you know, and you had mentioned that earlier about histamine inducing inflammation in in some people. I think this is a really important point because there has been a lot of like, oh, you know, get your fermented, um, foods in because, you know, of the microbiome and needing good bacteria and that's a better way to do it than pills and et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, that's not true for every woman. Right. So what are some of the other things that you have noticed for you that have been, you know, that are, Good foods and good supplements, and then things that aren't good for you, and you know, even supplements maybe that didn't work for you.
1: Yeah, so, um, yeah, coming back to those fermented foods. So, I also started to brew my own kombucha Mm
2: -hmm. when I
1: got into this whole topic like Mm -hmm. two years ago. I started this, and then I I also, I got quite um, sick often after drinking it, but it was not like such a clear connection. Mm-hmm. But, and also not totally sick, but I could always feel that my throat was like kind of, okay, a cold is starting, right? Mm-hmm. Now I know it's probably the a reaction to the kombucha, right? Yeah. But it's exactly as you said, when you start to go into research, okay, what can I do to heal my body holistically? Or what if I have problems, have problem with hormones or... And the endometriosis then the gut always comes up mm-hmm. and then every like 90 percent of all pages will tell you okay eat more fermented foods and this is what i thought as well mm-hmm. and i was eating the sauerkraut actually after i went to india for uh, traveling and got an infection there which is normal when going to india mm-hmm. <laughs> so um and I was like, okay, let's do something good for my gut. And yeah. I was eating the sauerkraut and then had the reaction. And then I was thinking bad of the kombucha. And I was like, okay, somehow this there must be a connection, right? Mm-hmm. Because I'm like endometriosis wise fine. But as mm-hmm. I said, I have like one or two flares per year. Mm-hmm. And so I knew, okay, when I have a flare, there must be something going on. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And so what is working well for me so i know so i have a soy We have this in our family mm-hmm. and this is also of course a strong indicator of uh yeah inflammation basically mm-hmm. and um and this is mainly triggered by wheat so um yeah so i completely eliminated wheat in my diet which was quite hard to be honest <laughs> So, for example, for sugar, sugar for me, I'm I'm like eating very little sugar, but I always did this. I was never into sweets or mm-hmm. something. I always mm-hmm. eat very, very dark chocolate. Mm-hmm. And um, so I intuitively, you know, um, somehow felt, OK, this is not good for my body. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, weed uh, was a different thing. So I think it's still quite hard because often you are forced to go low carb then because it's like, Okay. I don't know when I eat, like, like I travel or I, um, so I always try to prepare my food, which I eat during my working schedule. Uh, um, but I mean, of course I'm busy as ever anyone else is. <laughs> and sometimes it's not fine to me. And then I go to the cafeteria and try to have a salad. I can eat like, or put axe in there or stuff. But mm-hmm. then what every person would do is take a kind of bread with it. Right. Right. And, this is like for me then not possible and so i often go low carb mm-hmm. and this of course it's also not good i do like i'm the rather thin person mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, also i need a lot of carbohydrates to think right. <laughs> and uh, yeah. yeah so this was rather difficult for me but now that i've i really eliminated it the last month and now really when i eat something with wheat just like really small amounts i have so lesions the next couple of days so it's really i know this is the number one
2: right food my body
1: really <laughs> and um so i really try to avoid it as yeah. best as possible yeah and um about gluten i'm not sure so i, I noticed when i eat a lot of um uh, processed carbohydrates in general um my body also doesn't like it but i'm fine with like eating sometimes uh, something out of it um but i think probably gluten free <laughs> would be better <laughs> but again this is like at the moment really hard for me to to realize but um yeah so last month's my, my well still so this month's my psycho is really good and i wonder so i was really like not eating a lot of also not gluten free bread so it's really mm-hmm. eliminating um this totally
0: so mm-hmm.
1: Maybe this was like really good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs>
0: what about? Um, yeah, supplements and stuff. Are there particular supplements that you take?
1: Yeah. So I I really love um, those curcuma or turmeric um, capsules mm-hmm. From, mm-hmm. From, from Research. How mm-hmm. it's called.
2: Mm-hmm. You
1: know. Yep. Um, this company. Yeah. And what's special about them? They they build it in the kind of global complex, which means, um, you know, like our membranes of the cells are also made off of um, lipids. Mm-hmm. And if you put a supplement in also kind of lipid shades, it really <laughs> like melt together. Yes. So the uh, bioavailability is really good mm-hmm. of those, I think. Mm-hmm. And so I tried another brand before. It also worked, but those are really amazing. So they totally work fine yeah. for me and I've just taken them for one month now also. Mm. Um, so this is, they're quite expensive, but I think, um, I will probably see, yeah,
0: still will take them
1: on a regular basis because it's such a good effect of them. And then I think magnesium, of Mm -hmm. course, it's, um, really important. So for me, this totally helps with cramps during Mm -hmm. my menstruation. Um, which, Which form of magnesium do you like? Um, what is it? I think it's a side trade. Okay. I know this is not like the best bioavailability, mm-hmm. yeah. but for me it works.
2: Okay.
1: Um, also, so this is like one of the main problems I often have, like, because I'm doing or reading a lot of or, like doing those courses, which mm-hmm. are international based right. often those supplements and also the diagnostic tests are not available here in Germany.
2: Nice.
1: So um, you really have to like, I always have to look out, okay, can I get this? And what, I mean, there are millions of brands also here Mm -hmm. offering supplements, but we both know that it's really important to know where they're coming from (laughs) and what they put in there. So uh, it's really challenging at times. So, but uh, pure encapsulation Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm.
2: products, supplements
1: are available here. Nice. Um, Yeah. And they are quite good. So I use magnesium from them. What else do I take? So I just started now also um, Berberine, mm-hmm. um, also from Tonal Research, mm-hmm. which is interesting, again, when it comes back to the microbiome stuff and the mm-hmm. connection there. Um, and this is basically a recommendation from Dr. Lara Bryden. Mm-hmm. Um, she says that she's seen that berberine helps endometriosis well,
2: mm-hmm. probably
1: because it kills the bad bacteria, leading to more inflammation. That's um, the hypothesis. Mm-hmm. But there's no trial into this. So, for curcuma or turmeric, there are uh, research papers out mm-hmm. there. And so, it's more or less in vitro studies, which means. There have been people like me doing stuff in the lab, but there hasn't Mm -hmm. been a clinical trial. But I mean, this is so important to um, understand that there isn't anyone paying for those clinical trials when it comes to uh, natural supplements, right? Right. Because often when you say, okay, um, I find for myself, I do not need to take hormonal birth control because if I... Like, keep an anti-inflammatory, anti-inflammatory diet and take curcuma, berberine, and magnesium. I'm fine as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then every, every conventional doctor will tell you, okay, but there's no study proving this. <laughs> and I will answer then. Uh, yeah, there is no study because there's not such a big pharmaceutical company right. out there who produces curcuma because the point is, they do not produce it because it's their nature. So they can't put a patent Mm -hmm. on it. So they can't make money with it. Um, So they simply do not have the money to do such a trial to show you this. And it's the same like with stress reduction and doing yoga. Uh, when it comes to any kind of things yeah. there's hardly a study out there showing or proving this because no one is interested <laughs> so why when i would work as a at a pharmaceutical company i also of course would not do a study right. showing that doing yoga is as efficient as taking the pill i want to sell <laughs> um, but this is like of course when you're not into this area and of how science is done. And how clinical trials are done
0: how, how do you want to know this right so yeah. well, um, i am so glad that you brought up that point because i think that's the biggest issue um, with uh people i know you know that um that are against supplementation and, and against you know natural things because they're they're like well the science doesn't prove it and i'm like we've got to follow the money right i mean just because there's not scientific research out there doesn't mean it's not true. It's just the money is not being put into it because people can't make money off of it, you know? So I'm, I'm glad as a scientist that you made that point because it's, it can be a frustrating conversation because I think a lot of people think, well, if it's important and if it is true, then there'll be, scientific backing and it's like it's not that simple you know so
2: yeah, um,
0: yeah. so I could talk to you forever because there's like a gazillion questions that I have um and you're so knowledgeable but we we gotta we're running low on time here we're gonna wrap it up so I just want to thank you so much for being here with me today this is like it's crazy informative I think that there's so many women that struggle with endometriosis that like have no idea about some of this latest research, you know, that it's kind of hard to find. um, And that, you know, yeah, I mean, what you kind of have to do is, is connect with your body and figure out, you know, and you, you go based off of some of the the dietary and supplementation recommendations out there but a lot of it's like figuring out how do you bring that inflammation down so I'm really glad that you you know focus so much on that so I know some people probably have some questions for you so can you let everybody know how that they can contact you
1: yeah so basically it's uh, via email at the moment so I'm planning to do a website but this will probably take another couple of months <laughs> so, yes really busy with my PhD,
2: yeah.
1: but yeah, I can um, yeah give you my email address later, and then
0: yeah, yeah so you people wanna, really welcome to, to write me. Okay, okay. You if, Do you want to say your email address on here?
1: Yeah, so yeah. it's lara.tima at lit.unigena.de.
0: Okay, we will get that written down for people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I was, yeah, I was thinking, I guess not. So so yeah this was awesome thank you so much again Yeah thank you so much being- I enjoyed it totally <laughs>